you know, my really big concern is what is going to happen in a place like Haiti or a place like, you know, the slums in um, outside of Nairobi, right? And those kinds of places, I'm quite frightened actually about what's going to happen more so than here because it's going to spread very quickly and there's going to be very little to offer people in terms of healthcare. Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's guest is Professor Catherine Mason, Vartan Gregorian, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Brown University. Professor Mason is a medical anthropologist who has conducted ethnographic fieldwork in China and the U.S. Her research addresses issues in medical anthropology, population health, bioethics, China studies, reproductive health, mental health, and global health. Her first book, Infectious Change, Reinventing Chinese Public Health After an Epidemic, was based on fieldwork she conducted in southeastern China on the professionalization and ethics of public health in China following the 2003 SARS epidemic. It was published by Stanford University Press in 2016 and won the Foundation for the Sociology of Health and Illness Book Prize in 2019. Professor Mason talks about the anthropologic view of a post-COVID-19 world and the mental health well-being of global populations and communities during and after this current pandemic crisis. I'm Catherine Mason. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at Brown University. And I worked for a very long time on the development of public health in China following the SARS epidemic of 2003 and uh, studied the, the new system that was put in after SARS. Um, I actually after publishing my book in 2016, went in a new direction uh, that might be changing yet again, because obviously current events have made my previous research a lot more relevant. Uh, But the new direction actually is a quite different topic on postpartum mental health in China and also here in the US. Um, In terms of what I'll be doing now, I really have no idea. But I imagine that it will take some form involving studying the effects of COVID-19. Oh, thank you. Uh, I think that's very relevant. I, if we could stick sort of on that track. So your current research is on the postpartum mental health in China. Mm-hmm. Something that we'd like to touch base on is perhaps the post-COVID mental health state of not just people in China, but globally. Is that something that <laughs> your research could go towards? Yes, I think so. I mean, that's what I'm very interested in right now and quite concerned about. Really, both here in the U.S. and I imagine in China and Hong Kong and all over the world, there are really big effects to shutting down society and telling people not only to stay home, but not to have any human contact outside of their household. Um, that that really affects people's ability to to function. And I'm, I'm quite concerned about the long-term mental health consequences of that. Now, if we could sort of stay on that track, what... If, if we could highlight some of the things that, have you noticed anything that sort of is being done in a positive direction related to that in terms of the mental health aspect of people going through this right now, uh, either locally or globally? Are there any 
good case studies that you can highlight at the moment? Um, I don't know about case studies because this is such a fast moving situation and I'm not really on top of what's happening all around the world in that regard. Uh, I have heard that there have been um, some mental health helplines put into place in China, which I think is a good thing. Uh, I know here in the States, I'm in touch with quite a lot of mental health practitioners who are all really working extremely hard to try to make sure that they're able to deliver mental health care over the phone or over uh, Skype or FaceTime or whatever. And I think there's a lot of concern in the mental health community about this. And so they're really trying to reach out to their patients and, and make sure everyone's okay. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that is on a lot of people's minds and there are a lot of community efforts to reach out, for example, to people living alone or to the, the elderly in particular who are living alone and, mm-hmm. you know, people are quite afraid to visit them in person because they don't want to make them sick. Um, and so they're at really high risk for some, some pretty bad mental health complications, I think. Um, so there are definitely community efforts to do that, but I, I don't know of a particular case study of something that's working particularly well. I think we'll have to kind of wait and see what happens. Now, in terms of effective mental health practices, is this something that needs to be uh, addressed sort of on a government level? You mean particularly with regards to the current pandemic or in general or what, what exactly are you asking? Um, you, you firsthand experienced SARS in China, am I correct? Yes. Yes. And, and uh, you dealt with something when you came back to the United States. Could you sort of uh, dive deeper into that story about experiences coming back from China post-SARS in the United States with your friends and your family? Sure. Yeah. So... Um, I was evacuated during SARS. My the the American organization that organized my um, my program there, where I was supposed to be teaching English at Zhongshan University in Guangzhou, um, they basically ordered us to come back, um, much in the same way that that a lot of people were evacuated from China back to the U.S. Uh, during the early stages of the current pandemic. Um, I was very upset about that at the time because at the time in Guangzhou, uh, people actually were not too terribly concerned about SARS. This was before um, before the whistleblower uh, in Beijing that let everybody know that there were actually a lot more cases than the Chinese government was letting on. And um, people were were mildly concerned, but just sort of saw it as one among many other things they had to deal with. Um, But uh, back in the States, people were, from my perspective, getting a little bit hysterical about it. Um, And when I came back, my, my parents informed me while I was en route that they would not be picking me up at the airport and that instead I was to take a taxi to my sister's apartment in Philadelphia, uh, where they wanted me to quarantine myself for 10 days uh, alone. And while that might sound totally reasonable now, given all the quarantining that's going on with regards to this new disease, uh, at the time, the the US CDC was actually actively recommending against doing things like that because it was just seen as really unnecessary if you didn't have any symptoms. Unlike COVID, 
SARS really only passed from symptomatic people. And so if you had no symptoms and you had had no contact with any SARS patients, which was the case for me, you really were not considered a threat um, at that time. And so uh, I very much felt that my parents were overreacting. And I was also quite young. I was 23 and I think uh, still in the phase of, of sort of chafing at my parents telling me what to do because I wanted to be independent. Right. So I, I, ref, I refused the quarantine. I basically fled my quarantine um, and went to New York City, which of course is a terrible place to go if you might have uh, an epidemic, as we, if you might have an infectious disease as we unfortunately see now with, with COVID-19. Um, and luckily I, you know, was not infected as, as I knew I wasn't. Um, but it definitely left a, a very big impression on me and on my whole family. Um, and uh, was was a, an upsetting experience. So, I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot recently because that feeling of, of being almost rejected by my family, like feeling at the time like they did not want to see me or touch me, um, when I was feeling very vulnerable because I hadn't seen them in a long time and I had had this long journey back was, was deeply distressing. And so, and that was on a very small scale compared to, to the enforced social isolation that's happening now. Um, so in terms of the mental health issues, I definitely have been thinking about that experience quite a bit. Uh, I mean, that sounds very uh, relatable to what's happening now. I mean, globally, as of today, it's, I think, coronavirus cases are 435,000 uh, and counting. Um, mm-hmm. For a lot of these individuals who are going through specifically what you're, you, you just described, uh, how, wh- what did you do after to, to help yourself deal with those sort of uh, negative type of emotions that you were feeling at that time? Oh, well, I did something that, that probably is not uh, <laughs> very practical for most people, which is decide to uh, make lemonade out of lemons, if you will, and I- and redirect that sort of confusion and distress into studying what had happened. And that's really what prompted my entire career was that experience, wow. um, was to try to understand what had happened to try to understand why people in Guangzhou were reacting so differently from my parents, um, to try to understand some of the xenophobia that emerged out of SARS. Um, and and so I got very, very interested in the sociocultural aspects of epidemics. Um, and that's what led to my gain a PhD in anthropology, specifically medical anthropology, um, and eventually writing a book about the aftermath of SARS. So I don't recommend that to most people, um, <laughs> but I definitely kind of redirected that angst um, into uh, really my entire career. Hmm. Well, if we could speak more on your book, um, uh, if, if people weren't to read it, what were some um, sort of lessons learned that uh, I, I, I know it's kind of hard to, uh, to put that into just a, a few words or a few sentences, but what, what were some important pieces of wisdom that or insights that they could get from, from reading your book? Well, I think the, the 
takeaway message, especially as it's relevant to right now, is that SARS really changed the public health system and the whole public health profession in China profoundly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really led to a reorganization of the system around uh, preventing precisely the event that's happening now. Um, so you may be familiar with your measures that were put into place in terms of setting up surveillance systems and reporting systems right. um, so that any new epidemic was supposed to be reported in a timely fashion upward. Um, but much more than that happened. Uh, huge amounts of money and resources were poured into local public health systems, particularly in the big cities where um, these sorts of things were expected to get out of control as indeed it did in Wuhan. Um, So people with higher degrees, master's degrees and PhDs were hired to run whole research programs uh, oriented not just around pandemic preparedness, but around um, a whole variety of uh, public health topics. But there is a, a very strong emphasis on preparedness and on preventing um, diseases from arising in China and if they did arise from getting out to the rest of the world because the the Chinese government really learned a lesson there, which is that people were going to get very upset if that happened and they were going to expect them to take very strong action. Um, and in fact, the one of the other things that I speak to in my book that I think is quite relevant to now is... Uh, the way in which the the criticism followed by the praise in China's uh, reaction to SARS really impacted uh, kind of what was taken away as being important um, and the proper way to respond to an epidemic. So um, you may recall that at first the Chinese government was heavily criticized for underreacting, for um, downplaying what was happening. Um, and not being forthcoming about how many cases there were, basically a cover-up, if you will. Uh Um, And that later, once they acknowledge the degree to which there is a very serious situation, uh, they took really dramatic action, which up until the current crisis um, really stood alone as some of the most dramatic and sort of impressive uh, containment actions that people had sort of taken in the modern era against a disease like this, like uh, quarantining whole universities and villages, um, building the SARS hospitals in 10 days, which of course they did again in this case, uh, and really taking quite a lot of very strong, somewhat draconian measures to contain the disease, which in the case of SARS was quite effective because SARS just was not as contagious as COVID-19 is. Um, and it was much easier to identify who was capable of spreading the illness. So one of the things that's been really tricky with this disease is is the asymptomatic carriers, which is just was not really an issue with SARS. And so it was much easier to control with these, with these traditional measures. And when they did that, they received a lot of praise. Um, and I think that we saw the effects of that with the immediate response to COVID-19 and that even though there was some delay in reporting at first, um, all of the global health sort of experts and professionals that I've been in touch with have 
generally been pleased with with the degree to which it's been a lot better in terms of reporting. So reporting did happen relatively quickly. There was a lot of sharing of information with the global health community. And then, of course, we saw the very extreme measures that were taken um, to contain the disease, which seemed to have been at least temporarily effective. And and my feeling is that the, the precedent for that was very much set with SARS. And um, China felt pretty confident that they would be able to, to at least slow the disease and that they would be praised for taking these really harsh measures, uh, which indeed they were. And one of the things that has greatly surprised me um, is the degree to which we're trying to copy that in a place like the U.S. or, or Italy, for example, which is, of course, a very different society. Um, and I, I have to be frank that I, I've been very taken aback by the degree to which um, we've instituted really, really severe measures here. I actually never thought I would see that, um, but I was wrong. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I think that that kind of speaks to uh, the leadership that that China has sought to show in this um, issue and and the way in which um, they are able to institute measures that others have a much harder time doing. Um, so so those are some of the most relevant takeaways. I mean, there are a lot of other things in my book as well. I speak quite a lot to uh, the role of migrant workers in public health um, and the sort of anxiety that local public health officials feel around uh, the lack of control and knowledge they have around the migrant population. So I was doing my research primarily in the Pearl River Delta in the cities right around Hong Kong, where there are very large, uh, very large populations of rural to urban migrant workers of the floating population, if you will. And so there's a lot of discussion in my book of of the anxiety around sort of being unclear about what diseases that population might be carrying around quite a lot of almost internal xenophobia, if you will, of, of people from rural areas uh, potentially bringing diseases to the cities, um, not understanding how to behave in a sanitary fashion as people kind of looked at it. Uh, so I write quite a bit about that. And then I also write about the um, the professionalization of the public health sector and the way in which um, the way in which leaders, the new leaders that were put into place who had a great amount of education were trying to kind of reform the way that government bureaucracies do business in China um, and trying to make uh, the interactions among the scientists who had been hired into these government institutions to to attempt to make those interactions more uh, professional. So less, you know, drinking and sort of guanxi network building and more um, sort of based in sharing of, of scientific data. And, and they had sort of mixed results with that, I would say. Um, it's very hard to to change the way people, especially in government bureaucracies, function um, in China. So, so there was a part that spoke to that. And then I also have a chapter dealing with the H1N1 pandemic, 
2009 because I was doing research for my book when that happened. Um, and I think something kind of important that we can take away from from that is that if you recall that particular disease, which admittedly was not as bad as this one, um, but did still end up killing overall about 200,000 people worldwide in the, during the course of the pandemic, um, that that disease arose in North America and not in China. Um, and the interesting thing there uh, from the Chinese perspective is that the local public health professionals I was working with expected uh, the U.S. to institute the kinds of quite extreme containment measures that China took during the early days of COVID-19 um, because they had, you know, there had been so many measures put into place at a global level in terms of reporting and containment and how the responsibilities of nations to each other to try to contain these things before they got out and caused a pandemic. Um, because the uh, the Chinese public health professionals I was working with very much bought into that idea of kind of mutual responsibility. Um, they very much expected the U.S. to institute really severe control measures to try to contain that pandemic. And when um, the U.S. basically responded by saying, you're crazy, we're not going to do that, this is not that bad, um, there was a lot of, of anger. Mm. Um, there, People were quite upset. They felt betrayed um, because they thought they had this agreement that everybody was going to do their part. Um, and for them, it didn't matter that H1N1 was not as scary, perhaps, as SARS. Um, it was still a new pandemic that was going to kill a lot of people and spread around the world, as indeed it did. Um, and then when China tried to institute control measures to keep that virus out by um, quarantining foreigners trying to enter the country, um, there are outcries from uh foreign countries about xenophobia and why are they doing this? It's it's overkill. Um, and so people were quite upset about that as well because they felt like, well, if you're not going to contain it, it's our responsibility to keep it from getting into China. Um, so I think that even though, of course, this current pandemic is, is different because it is quite a lot more lethal than H1N1, um, I still think it's worth thinking about that difference in reactions and this issue of mutual responsibility, um, which I feel like is not necessarily evenly distributed globally. If we could sort of touch base on, uh, you, you mentioned that there was anger and, and betrayal. Uh, mm -hmm. The people in charge had an agreement. So you think that there was a, a lack of response in the beginning of all of this? And what, what do you owe that to specifically, like in US, for example? You mean with the H1N1 pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, um, I think I owe it to the idea that, uh, well, there are two things. So one is that there has uh, long been the feeling that something like the flu, which passes very easily between people, right, uh, much more so than SARS, uh, it's not really possible to contain, which is sort of the argument that was made at the time that, look, this thing is going to get out. It's it's right. the flu. Right, you can't right. contain it. Um, and so there's no point. Like, instead, we have to just kind of do the best we can to mitigate the effects. 
Um, of course, you could say the same thing about COVID-19 um, if you want to. <laughs> um, so that was one thing. The other, the other thing uh, is that that I think goes a little bit more deeply into um, the sort of geopolitical power dynamics that uh, at least were still in place in 2009 is that um, I think that the the U.S. didn't feel like they really had the obligation to do something super dramatic just to prevent that sort of medium dangerous virus from spreading around the world that um, they were taken aback at the suggestion that they should um, institute measures that would that would bring economic harm to people and um, and take away their liberties just to kind of prevent something that was already here from going to another country. I mean, all of these, one really significant thing there is that all of the preparations that were happening after SARS were predicated upon the assumption that the next pandemic was going to come out of Asia, out of Southeast Asia, probably China, maybe, you know, Vietnam or somewhere like that. And so all of the U.S.'s preparedness plans had to do with uh, how to keep something like that out of the U.S. Uh Uh, And there was very little preparation in terms of how to contain something within the U.S. to prevent it from getting out, which is just not something people were thinking about. you know, they were thinking about how to protect the U.S. from others, not how to protect others from the U.S. Um, and so it was just not on anyone's radar, this idea that, well, if you're asking China or Hong Kong or whoever to contain uh, their viruses, that we should also have to contain ours. Um, that just wasn't really on anyone's radar. And, and I think that's, you know, speaks to a lot of, of issues with the way that we think about dangerous new diseases, that they come from somewhere else. And when I say we, I'm talking about people in Europe and the US, the sort of Western world, um, that bad diseases come from exotic places. Um, and I think that speaks to the fixation early on in this pandemic on you know, did this come from a wild animal? Was it people eating pangolins, right? Um, Which really there isn't good evidence for right now. I mean, there's certainly evidence that it originated in bats, but there's no good evidence for what the sort of intermediary host was. But there's this immediate assumption that it must have to do with exotic wild animals. Um, and, And I think that just speaks to how we think about where diseases come from. Um, even though most flus come originate in in birds or pigs, much more ordinary animals that people around the world eat. Um, in fact, H1N1 probably originated in pigs on a sort of ordinary pig farm in Mexico is the is the current thinking. So um, that is, that is not the story that we tend to tell about the origins of epidemics. And so it just was not the way that people were thinking about it or preparing for a pandemic. They were preparing to keep the disease in Asia or in Africa or somewhere else that feels exotic to uh, Western countries. When it comes to uh, 
this particular virus, what we're dealing with right now. Where do you see this in the next month, in the next three months, six months, 12 months? What, what do you see happening? Gosh, I've quit predicting things because I've been so wrong <laughs> so far. Um, so I, I'm not going to be able to predict that. I mean, I think that everybody feels it's it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, you know, I think most epidemiologists are predicting a second wave at some point in China. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully not as bad as the first one, but who knows? Um, I think most epidemiologists are predicting a big resurgence in the fall, which is what usually happens with, with the flu. Um, you know, if assuming that things get a little more under control here uh, before then, we might not, in which case there won't be a resurgence because it'll just keep going. Um, it's going to be bad. You know, I think that I, my biggest concern as someone who studies global health more broadly is in countries that have no health infrastructure right. and have very poor living conditions. Uh, you know, the countries we've been looking at so far, it seems bad. And yet China, Italy, the U.S., we all have decent health infrastructures, comparatively speaking. Um, so, you know, my really big concern is what is going to happen in a place like Haiti or a place like, you know, the slums in, um, outside of Nairobi, right? And those kinds of places, I'm quite frightened actually about what's going to happen more so than here because it's going to spread very quickly and there's going to be very little to offer people in terms of healthcare. Now, in, ter- in terms of, uh, so what are we waiting for then? Um, do we just have to sit tight until a vaccine comes along? <laughs> well, this is the problem. I, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently and have been writing about a little bit too, is that we need a new plan. I mean, you know, the there have been editorials that have come out in the newspapers here in the U.S. saying, you know, we have to be prepared to do this for the next 18 months, that maybe we can come out of hiding periodically mm-hmm. when things settle down, but then it'll come back and we'll have to kind of go back into our pods. And I just think from, as someone who who studies society, I yeah. think that while in a mathematical sense, that might make sense that, that we can't do that, right? right? Society can't shut down for 18 months until there's a vaccine. So we have got to have another plan. Um, and I, I really don't know what that plan is. I mean, I think on the U.S. side of things, uh, it has got to involve having an enormous surge in manufacturing capacity in terms of producing more ventilators and masks and all that sorts of equipment. Um, you know, a place like Hong Kong is different because it's small and they're, and people are used to to some degree ever since SARS with having, you know, a lot of checking of temperatures and controls of these things at the border. Um, And I think that, you know, in Hong Kong, there can be sort of this uh, prolonged period of kind of in-betweenness perhaps where um, people aren't totally in hiding, but there's a lot of of caution happening. I don't know, though. I mean, you know, I don't know how long Hong Kong can keep up what it's doing right now either. I mean, everybody is sort of still inside to a a considerable degree. So um, 
it's just it's it's hard to know how this is going to end because the whole idea of keeping everyone away from each other so that we can make sure that uh, not too many people get infected at once. You know, there is a lot of discussion of flattening the curve in the United States. Uh-huh. Um, and that, again, all makes sense from a mathematical sense, but uh, that implies that we're going to be at this for the entire 18 months till we can have a vaccine. And I just don't think that that is practical. I just don't think we can maintain that as a society. Um, aside from the economic costs that are becoming catastrophic in a lot of parts of the world. Um, I think just socially, we, we need other people. You know, I have two children, two small children who are cooped up inside with each other, um, haven't seen another child in a while. And I, I just can't keep them inside alone for a year and a half. Like, it's just not possible. You know, like, they need to play. Yeah. Um, they need to see other children. And there are going to be huge, huge ramifications of what we are doing here. Again, speaking to mental health, but also just the ability of our society to function. Um, that there has to be an endpoint, and it can't be in a year and a half. So... You know, I think at some point we're going to realize that. Um, hopefully, there will be more work on uh, increasing supply and not just trying to reduce demand. So, I mean, we might have to face that a lot of people are going to get very sick and just prepare for that uh, by, you know, increasing hospital capacity, producing more ventilators, training people to step up into healthcare roles. You know, not everybody needs to be a physician and people can be trained to provide supportive care. Um, and we might need to do something like that, you know, have field hospitals and train extra people and just get through it because I think hiding for a year and a half is not really possible in the real world. That right there sounds like a, a great first step to a plan that I think the government should consider. Um, yeah. Are there any other sort of suggestions? You know, you have the ear of, say, hypothetically, you have the ear of, you know, all the global leaders, President Trump. Well, now, what other suggestions would you have to combat this over the next 18 months while we do wait for that vaccine? This isn't really my area. I'm more in sort of studying what happens rather than prescribing what should happen. Um, but I, I, I just want to reiterate that that we just can't do this forever, right? And so, I mean, I think that there needs to be also a lot of aid provided from those countries that are able to uh, places uh, like the developing countries I was referring to, um, just to forestall, like, the extreme catastrophe that it seems like is coming there. Um, Right now, the U.S. doesn't have that capacity at all because we're struggling with our own pandemic, but I know that China is doing some work in that area and, um, you know, it's certainly good for their uh, image, uh, which I know that Xi Jinping is quite concerned with. And as usual, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has done a masterful job of um, remaking the narrative and controlling the narrative so that it has gone from a lot of criticism to uh, a lot of celebration, nationalist celebration of China's greatness and controlling 
the epidemic. I mean, whether that lasts or not remains to be seen, but they've done a masterful job with that. And I think are looking at providing aid as a way to uh, further bolster that image. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could, that could come in handy. Um, you know, there's a part of me that feels like we should just get it over with already. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. once people are a little more immune, um, those people can can provide a lot more help. For example, my sister has already had the disease and she's recovered. Um, And so, you know, she can be useful now because she's probably not going to get it again. Right. Uh, At least not in the near term. Um, You know, it it heartens me because my parents are in hiding in the same city where she is. And so I know that if needed, she could take care of them without fear for herself. Right. so, you know, there are going to be a growing number of people who are immune and, and we need to leverage that by putting those people to work, especially those who have lost their jobs. Right. Um, you know, they can be given jobs working in the healthcare response because they'll presumably be immune and so won't have to worry about the issues that healthcare workers are dealing with right now in terms of getting infected. Um, so we need to think creatively. I guess that's my takeaway. Like we really need to think creatively um, in terms of solutions that go beyond asking everyone to stay home. I'm not suggesting that people should not stay home. I'm just suggesting that it's not going to be enough on a global scale um, and that it's just not sustainable in the very long term. We don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, you've, you've given some very valid points here. And uh, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of frustration and a lot of uh, angst. There's a lot of, People just, you know, I, I think the work that you're doing in terms of sort of the post-traumatic stress that's going to happen globally is very, very important. Um, and I'd just be curious to see where that research and, and where, where that where that takes you uh, in terms of how not just myself and not just Hong Kong, but globally, you know, what, you know, how, how can we, because uh, I think dealing with the sort of, uh, if it is going to be 18 months of this type of lifestyle, there will be some mental health issues. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm, I'm extremely worried about that. And, um, I mean, we're, we're already experiencing something of a mental health crisis in the U S. Um, you know, a lot of it having to do kind of also related to the substance abuse crisis we have here, the opioid crisis, but, mm. um, I'm worried for my students because right. there have been a, there's been a huge explosion of mental health problems among university students in the U S and I've seen that with my own students over the years. Um, and I just really worry about, you know, at at a sort of personal level, because these are the folks I'm dealing with, you know, it's a small subset of the population, of course, but I worry about a lot of them, um, having been basically evacuated from their campuses and sent home and, they're feeling very isolated and it's unclear when they can kind of get back to school as normal. And, um, it's, I'm quite concerned for some of them who are already kind of a bit fragile. And I'm also concerned for children. I, I, I'm quite concerned for the long-term trauma to children who are not allowed to see or play with other children for a long period of time um, and kept inside. Um, I think that's gonna have really severe effects if it goes on for too long on on children. So, uh, 
again, on a sort of what's close to me level, the kinds of things that I'm thinking about and worried for my children as well. I think I think that's a big worry that maybe a, a, not a lot of adults remember what it was like being a child. I mean, missing an entire year of school while you're in elementary school, that's a huge, huge thing. There was a lot of growth that happens, not only mentally, but intellectually, socially, and uh, it just seems to be stunted for a lot of kids. If this yeah. is to go on, um, what, what can be done there? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's really trying their very best, but... You know, right now I'm attempting to homeschool my uh, second grader and preschooler while also uh, transitioning to teaching my courses online. And it's it's very challenging. Um, And I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm not trained in this. And they're just desperate to see other kids, too. Um, They need to play. You know, that's the whole point when you're four, like the younger dog is, is playing and you there's only so much playing with your eight-year-old sister that you can do <laughs> when yeah. you're four. Like, you need to play with other children um, eventually. And so it's, uh, you know, right now they're they're doing okay. But if this goes on for too long, I I worry about them too. So I think I think the, the after effects of this are going to be with us for an extremely long time, especially because it's happening at such a global level. Definitely. Well, you mentioned some uh, resources that people can uh, can use right now if they were going through uh, certain mental health issues. Um, do you have anything specific that you can share with the audience? Oh, well, I mean, I, there are uh, a lot of uh, crisis lines in the U.S. I don't know exactly what's available in Hong Kong, but... Um, uh, this is fine, yeah. Yeah, in the U.S., there's a crisis text line. Um, I, can, I can look up, I would have to look up the number, but... Um, there's a text. Yeah. yeah, there's a, you could find it. I'm sure there's a crisis text line that anybody can send a text 24 hours a day about any crisis that they're having. Okay. Um, and there's also national suicide prevention hotline, um, right. which is of course really, really important. Um, I, I imagine there's at least something like that in place in, in Hong Kong as well. Right. Um, but you know, those, those things are very important. And the other thing I would just say is to, is to make sure that you're checking in on people, you know, friends and family who, who might um, have been struggling with depression or something beforehand. Um, I, I'm quite concerned about those people, especially people living alone. Right. Um, you know, essentially people living alone are, are in solitary confinement right now. And we know there are really serious mental health effects of solitary confinement. That's why, a lot of contexts in in prisons it's considered cruel and unusual punishment so um especially people living alone to just you know make sure that we're checking up on people and um calling them often you know there have been a lot of calls to 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 really keep in as close touch as possible with everyone you care about and i i think that's extremely important now just calling people Mm. Um, more so than texting, because people need to hear a human voice right. when they've been alone for so long. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I think people are doing that already, but just to reiterate the importance of that. Some great advice. Well, Professor Mason, this sounds like a good time to um, to conclude this interview. Uh, you've given some very good actionable steps, uh, not only for individuals listening, but also for governments out there. 
uh, in terms of uh, sort of the infrastructure play that they should be focusing on uh, for the next uh, six, 12 months. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Professor Mason. All right. Okay.